The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Catholic Home on member-supported Restoration Radio. I'm your host, Teresa, and on this episode, I'm joined by my sister, Margaret. This episode is a members-only episode and is not available for individual purchase and download. To receive access to all Restoration Radio episodes, please visit truerestoration.org and go to the member area on the menu bar to find out details on becoming a member. Today, we will be mostly just introducing the subject of the man who was Chesterton. And no, today is not Thursday. We'll be giving a little bit of a background of who he was and why he is so relevant now. Then, during a future show, we'll expand a bit more on his writings. Kind of a bit like how most of us have expanded a bit since the end of Lent. In case you're wondering what G.K. Chesterton has to do with the Catholic home, rest assured that by the end of these shows you will understand why this Catholic thinker and writer deserves some sort of pride of place in every Catholic's home during this era. Before today's guest introduces G.K. Chesterton himself, I will introduce my guest. So welcome to the Catholic home, Margaret. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's a pleasure to have you. And would you please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, first of all, we were both raised in a traditional Catholic household, And because our parents knew their faith well, they rejected the changes of Vatican II at the onset. And they walked out on the first new mass in their parish and they never looked back. So because of their strong faith, I have never attended the Novus Ordo. Um, I've lived in Australia and in England, and I'm now currently residing in New England. I'm single, so because I need to support myself, I work as a legal executive assistant at a large law firm. Uh, it's a nine-to-five job, so I guess you can say that I am the woman who was not Monday, or should I say, does not like Mondays. <laughs> well, thanks for that brief overview of yourself, Margaret. So where is a good place for us to embark upon the adventure that is G.K. Chesterton? Maybe we should refer to him from now on simply as G.K.C., because it's such a mouthful saying G.K. Chesterton. Or, sure. seeing he seems like family to us, we can call him just Chesto. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> so. uh, Well, first off, I must admit that I am by no means an expert on Chesterton. He actually had some very strong opinions on so-called experts and specialists, by the way. Uh, So the information I will be presenting has been pulled from various resources and mainly from the American Chesterton Society's website and other reliable Chesterton biographies. Uh, It's really impossible to sum him up, but I guess a good place to start would be to say that Chesterton was probably the most brilliant and complete thinker of the 20th century. He was a great defender of the faith and tradition, and also was very outspoken on the social and political evils emerging in our modern times. Just so our listeners can know what to expect in this show, I will be sprinkling the show with as many quotes and passages from his vast array of writings as possible to give our listeners an idea of his style of writing, you know, give an insight into his complete thinking. So regarding tradition, he said, quote, 
Tradition means giving a vote to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead, unquote. Brilliant. Yes, very brilliant. It's just, um, that's just, a, I thought that's a, a good quote to start off with for him. He goes on to say that tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant group of people who happen to be walking about. Tradition asks us not to neglect a good man's opinion, even if he is our father. And another quote on the timelessness of truth, he said, an imbecile habit has arisen in modern controversy of saying that such and such a creed can be held in one age but cannot be held in another. Some dogma, we are told, was credible in the 12th century but is not credible in the 20th. You might as well say that a certain philosophy can be believed on Mondays but cannot be believed on Tuesdays." Unquote. I would say that these two quotes, in a way, sum up Chesterton's thinking. He was surrounded by modernist thinking and he used his great intellect and common sense to defend tradition and fight off the so-called progressive movement. He knew full well that the modernist aim was not to just attack and try to destroy the Catholic Church, but their aim was to attack the very virtue of faith itself, and he realized they were trying to reduce everything to a natural dimension, which eventually leads to atheism. He was surrounded by these poisonous fumes, but he courageously took on all branches of modernist thought, things that attacked reason and common sense, and proceeded to defend every area that was being attacked which is just about every topic imaginable. In particular, he persistently targeted the growing secularism of his day. He was one of the first critics against eugenics and published a book called Eugenics and Other Evils in 1922. This was the first sizable work that opposed and exposed the eugenics movement that was gaining so much momentum at that time. Eugenics was regarded by many as progressive and enlightened, and was supposed to be for the bettering of human society. But Chesterton warned of the dangers and horrifying abuses and violations of the individual person. He said that never perhaps since the beginning of the world has there been an age that had less right to use the word progress than we. Gosh, he really had the situation pegged, didn't he? One aspect that springs to mind when you said that was despite the criticisms the modern world rightly makes about the horrors of the Nazis' eugenics, it is actually now an accepted widespread practice in the West. Like, every expectant mother is pressured to have various tests during each pregnancy and then pressured, or at least strongly encouraged, to terminate, as they call it, if a test result suggests an above-average risk for any defect. And um, looking at the bigger picture, by these quotes on tradition and immutability of truth, Chesterton, in essence, is describing all the errors of modernism. And basically resounding the warnings of St. Pius X against the modernist way of thinking, like, you know, their denial of absolute truth and their beliefs that truth is changeable. Yes, precisely. He definitely had his finger on the pulse at the time. Okay, so I think here I'll start off with a brief background. I've gathered a lot of this information from the American Chesterton Society, who I believe are the best promoters of GKC. And a little disclaimer, just in case, they are not set of a contest Catholic, but would be classified as quote-unquote conservative Novus Ordo. So G.K. Chesterton was born in London in 1874 and died in 1936 at the age of 62. So he died about three years before the start of the Second World War. 
He never attended college, but went to an art school and produced numerous sketches and drawings. In fact, G.K. Chesterton has quite a few good quotes on the topic of art, my favorite being, art like morality consists in drawing the line somewhere. Oh, that's fantastic. Chesterton first referred to himself as an Orthodox Christian and eventually came to identify his religious position more and more with Catholicism. He wrote his famous Christian apologetic called Orthodoxy in 1908, while he was still a high church Anglican. He went on to convert some years later in 1922. Uh, G.K. Chesterton was a man of character and of intellectual integrity, a man of joy, a man of faith, and above all, charitable and amiable in all his dealings. His joy, childlike wonder, and his goodness oozed throughout his writings. I would say that his whole charism was that of wonder, gratitude, and joy. He said, joy is the gigantic secret of Christianity, and also that thanks are the highest form of thought, and gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. Chesterton denounced both Puritanism and hedonism. He saw the two opposite sides of the coin, the repressive Puritans and the hedonistic libertines and neo-pagans, both being out of balance, one with too many restraints on reason and the other none at all. Chesterton was a strong believer in living life to the fullest within the lawful boundaries of the faith, of course. I think this particular characteristic and his jovial spirit is what I like the best about him. I think he would have been a lot of fun at social gatherings, don't you think? Yes, I agree for sure. And you really did just capture the essence of what he was like. He really seemed to grasp the essence of the wondrous gift of that life, which our Lord came into this world so that we might have it more abundantly, as St. John put it. And surely that deep joy from the life of union with God is what caused him to spill over with such zest and zeal for living the faith with this outward expression of joy and gratitude, which which was so clear um, and so obvious about him. So anyway, thanks for sharing that little bit about his character and also for giving us a general idea about his insight. I think now it's kind of important that we move on to something about his personal appearance. Okay. <laughs> well, that's a big topic. Um, I think all biographers and people with good eyesight can agree that he was a big man in every sense of the word. <laughs> he stood six foot four and weighed over 300 pounds. So when he weighed in on any subject, he definitely weighed in. <laughs> good one. I know, so, so his weight, his weight was the subject of jokes, many of which were his own. One joke was that he said he was the most polite man in all of England. After all, he could stand up on a bus and offer his seat to three ladies. <laughs> and another one, and during the First World War, a lady in London asked him why he wasn't out at the front, to which he replied, if you go round to the side, you will see that I am. <laughs> He's hilarious. What if this been as this complete character? So he usually had a cigar in his mouth and walked around wearing a cape, a crumpled hat, and small glasses at the end of his nose. He also carried a sword stick wherever he went. He said he'd like to carry it wherever he went in case he ever needed to save a lady in distress, so tr a true gentleman. Uh, he was a little absent-minded, and he did much of his writing while waiting at train stations, since he usually missed the trains he meant to catch. Uh, Now's a good time to introduce Dale Alquist. 
Del Alquist is the president of the American Chesterton Society, and he describes GKC as this absent-minded, overgrown elf who liked to laugh at his own jokes and would amuse children at parties by catching buns in his mouth. Yet this was the man who wrote Orthodoxy, which led the young atheist C.S. Lewis to become a Christian. Lewis, unfortunately, became an Anglican instead of a Catholic. C.S. Lewis considered himself entirely Orthodox Anglican and never did convert to Catholicism, of course. And perhaps his marriage to that divorcee, which um, might have been a stumbling block for him because converting to Catholicism would have meant he would have to give up that so-called marriage. So it might have been an emotional barrier involved to his formal conversion to the One True Church not happening? Yes, possibly. That's a good point. Um, but anyway, so getting back to Chesterton. So as a writer... Chesterton was prolific. Besides Catholic apologetics, he had a vast and incredibly diverse output of writings on philosophy, politics, economics, history, biography, detective fiction, uh, playwriting, poetry, and the list goes on and on. He wrote about everything and managed to pull it all together. And when I say prolific, I really mean prolific. Okay, so here's what I mean. According to the American Chesterton Society, he wrote 100 books, contributions to 200 more, hundreds of poems, five plays, five novels, and about 200 short stories. Yet, despite all these accomplishments, G.K. Chesterton considered himself primarily as what? A journalist. And what does the world mostly know him for? His Father Brown detective stories. So I'll continue the list. He wrote over 4,000 newspaper essays, including 30 years' worth of weekly columns for the Illustrated London News, and 13 years' worth of weekly columns for the Daily News, and he also edited his own newspaper called GK's Weekly. So here's a little perspective. To write 4,000 essays is the equivalent of writing an essay a day for 11 years. And his essays, though contemporary in his day, are still timeless and relevant in our day. So one might think that with such productiveness that Chesterton must have been redundant and verbose. And sometimes I have thought this. But on the contrary, Archbishop Fulton Sheen, author of 70 books himself, stated in his autobiography that he identified Chesterton as the stylist who had the greatest impact on his own writing. He said, quote, the greatest influence in writing was G.K. Chesterton, who never used a useless word, who saw the value of the paradox and avoided what was trite, unquote. Wow. Given he wrote so many words, it's truly astonishing that he was deemed to have never used a useless one. That's just amazing, really. Yes. So here we also see Fulton Sheen saying Chesterton never used a useless word and also acknowledged GKC's value of the paradox. In fact, Chesterton is referred to as the prince of the paradox, or the prince of paradox. Chesterton defined paradox by saying, paradox is truth standing on her head to attract attention. So paradox is a concept at the heart of his writings and the central theme to all his arguments for Christianity, especially in his book, Orthodoxy. In this book, G.K. Chesterton explains the symbol of the cross when considered next to the pagan circle symbol. He wrote, quote, As we have taken the circle as the symbol of reason and madness, 
we may very well take the cross as the symbol at once of mystery and of health. Buddhism is centripetal, but Christianity is centrifugal. It breaks out. For the circle is perfect and infinite in its nature, but it is fixed forever in its size. It can never be larger or smaller. But the cross, though it has at its heart a collision and a contradiction, can extend its four arms forever without altering its shape. Because it has a paradox in its center, it can grow without changing. The cross opens its arms to the four winds. It is a signpost for free travelers. That is just beautiful, beautiful quote. Another thing to always remember about Chesterton is that he is English through and through. The famous Hilaire Belloc, who was his close friend, said, quote, He is a mirror of England, and especially is he English in his method of thought, as he is in his understanding of things and men. He writes with an English accent, unquote. <laughs> this could be one of the reasons why it could be a challenge for non-English speaking people to understand some of his writings. Though apparently he is popular in, in Argentina, Brazil, Mexico, Italy, and Poland, and I'm sure a few other countries. I actually have this Mexican friend who's been living in the U.S. for years, and she can speak and write English fluently. But she commented to me once that she once tried to read Chesterton, but just gave up immediately. She just said, I just don't, I can't understand him. I don't get him. And you know what? I completely understand where she was coming from. Um, you know, he can be a bit difficult at times, and it does take some getting used to. I'm not even sure if even the English can understand all of Chesterton's references. <laughs> True. But I guess it kind of forces us to broaden our knowledge by then having to find out what, who, or where he is talking about, which is an education mm. in itself. So, you know what I mean? So now could you okay. give our listeners a, a bio or summary of events in his life for a bit of an overview? Sure, of course. Um, so I... I like this brief bio I found online. It's by this person called Edward Peter. I have no idea who he is, but it was on this website called catholic.education.org. So I'll begin quoting from this article. Okay, so here goes. Gilbert Keith Chesterton, 1874 to 1936, was the brightest star in a constellation of great men who illuminated English and Catholic letters during the first half of the 20th century. Forever linked with such giants as Hilaire, Hilaire Belloc, Monsignor Ronald Knox, J.R.R. Tolkien, and Evelyn Waugh, writers who excelled in two or three forms of writing, Chesterton worked in a half-dozen genres and mastered nearly all of them. Moreover, his gentle personality and friendly manner of persuasion preserve him as the most readable of the great apologists who fought for Christian truth at the beginning of the bloody 20th century. Oh, no need to swear. <laughs> Sorry. I'll just, I'll, so I'll continue with this quote. Chesterton is also called the most quoted man in English. He was certainly one of the most prolific. Beyond his vast literary output, his exhaustive public speaking and debating work did much to advance the cause of common sense in general and of Catholic spiritual wisdom in particular. Indeed, Chesterton's conversion to the Catholic Church in 1922 was, second only to the disruption of the First Vatican Council during the Italian Revolution, the most talked about religious event in Europe since the conversion of fellow Englishman John Henry Newman some 70 years earlier. 
Upon his death, Chesterton was named by Pope Pius XI a defender of the Catholic faith, thereby redeeming somewhat a similar title bestowed on, but squandered, by another Englishman 400 years earlier, unquote. Wow, that's an impressive honour bestowed on him. I wonder if anyone else around that time received the same. And it's also interesting that his conversion was the most talked about religious event in Europe at that time. It just goes to show how respected he was in both Protestant and Catholic circles. Yes, exactly. Um, well, there was this very impressive group of converts, quite the movement from the early 19th century through to the mid 20th century that saw a vast number of leading intellectuals converting to Catholicism. Many were outspoken and their intention was to expose the fallacies of religious skeptics at the time. There were converts working in all intellectual areas, science, literature and philosophy, and uh, they strove to prove that Catholicism was actually intellectually liberating and they openly opposed the errors of liberalism that were just rampant at the time. John Henry Newman was at the forefront of this shift. He first was at the center of the Oxford movement, named because it started at Oxford University, and the aim of this movement was to have a renewal of Catholic thought and practice within the Church of England. So it was a high church movement within the Church of England. Another interesting thing happened in 1833 in Newman's life. It was the year he wrote that beautiful hymn to the Holy Ghost called Lead Kindly Light. It's that prayer that's at the back of that little, you know, that little orange tan book on the Holy Ghost. You can find it back there. Anyway, he spent years searching for the true church of Christ and always wanted to do the will of God. So when he, I'm talking about Newman, when he realized that he had not sufficiently asked for God's grace and light, he composed this hymn. So after much study and the grace of God, Newman realized that to save his soul, he needed to be inside the Catholic Church, and he then severed himself from the Church of England and the Oxford movement, and was finally received into the Catholic Church 12 years later. So his conversion had a huge impact at the time because he was such a leading intellectual influence within the Anglican Church. After Newman's conversion, the world saw other intellectuals also converting, people like Isaac Hecker, Evelyn Waugh, Thomas Merton, Graham Greene, just to name a few. Father Faber also entered the Catholic Church in 1845, the very same year as Newman, by the way. So it's, uh, it's really saying something that Chesterton's conversion several decades, la- several decades later, out of this huge list of converts, was the most talked about conversion since John Henry Newman. Indeed, it just sort of shows how Chesterton's writings and Chesterton himself were so highly regarded and that the mainstream world at the time knew him and was so interested in news pertaining to him. It's just hard to to fathom that. And I guess if we weren't aware of how the organised forces of naturalism operate, it would be totally inexplicable to us now that he's so neglected and hardly known or talked about in our times. Yes, exactly. So true. So now, of course, it's hard to mention Chesterton without Belloc and vice versa. Hilaire Belloc, of course, probably understood Chesterton more than anyone else since they were such great friends and had just about everything in common. I found an interesting quote of Belloc's which I thought was very insightful. He said, quote, Although Chesterton's precision of thought and supreme talent for exact logic had much to do with his failure to conduct the mind of his contemporaries, 
he did influence that mind through emotions, for indeed his contemporaries of the Protestant culture live upon emotion and know of hardly any other process for arriving at conviction, unquote. I just found this extremely telling of Chesterton's zeal to convert Protestants. It seems like he completely understood that they live upon emotion, so he was meeting them where they were at and understood that the Protestant culture basically lived and operated by emotion. I also think this is a good thing to keep in mind when reading Chesterton in knowing that he was trying to conduct the mind of Protestants through emotions, and this, of course, would then eventually lead them to arrive at the truth. So it's good to know that this is you know, what he was thinking behind his writings. Yeah, and also we can apply that in our times to the Nervous Ordo friends of ours because doesn't that remind you of the average person in Nervous Ordo because they too are like Protestants in their being led first and foremost through their emotions and feelings. Absolutely. Yeah, so we call that modernist sentimentality. But it's absolutely crucial that it doesn't end there though and that we are all made to realise eventually that the faith is not based on emotions and I'm sure Chesterton achieved that. This might be a good point to remind you that you are listening to The Catholic Home on member-supported Restoration Radio. I'm your host, Teresa, and I'm joined by Margaret. And today we've been discussing the Catholic author and poet, Gilbert Keith Chesterton. We want to remind you that The Catholic Home is a production of member-supported Restoration Radio. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to mail at truerestoration.org. So now our listeners are getting a better idea of the man and his genius. So could you please let us know more about the events in his life, Margaret? Yes, absolutely. So I'll start with um, a rough chronological bio or sketch with dates and other historical events that were happening during his life as reference points. So here I, here I go, I'll start right here. Um, so Gilbert Keith Chesterton was born on May 29, 1874, in Camden Hill, London, during the reign of Queen Victoria. His brother Cecil Chesterton was born four years later in 1879. He also had an older sister, Beatrice, but she died in childhood at the age of eight. In 1887, at 13 years of age, he entered St. Paul's School and joined the Junior Debating Club. In 1892, he left St. Paul's School and the following year entered University College in London to study art at the Slade School. In 1895, he left University College without any qualifications and began working at Redway's Publishers. Okay, so now we're up to 1896. This year he moved to Fisher Unwin Publishers and met the Blog family, and then just two years later became engaged to Francis Blog. It's kind of funny because now the, the intimations that the word blog has in our days, because he would have been a prolific blogger had he been in our times. <laughs> That's true. All right, so I'll continue on. Um, in 1900, he began reviewing for the Speaker publication, and so begins writing articles for the Daily News. It was in that year that he also met Hilaire Belloc, which was the beginning of their famous friendship. They shared many beliefs and both voiced criticisms against state socialism and industrial capitalism, but instead promoted the economic philosophy of distributism, which ultimately was for the common man and against big business and big government. The two of them were visionaries and well ahead of their times. Because of their partnership and like-mindedness, 
George Bernard Shaw coined the term the Chester Belloc, which was this fantastical beast that Shaw created in his own mind. But this name stuck, and there are still debating societies with this name, Chester Belloc. You can actually search for them online. You can, there's a place called Chester Belloc Debating. Um, okay, so 1901 is the year that Chesterton married Frances Blog. Theirs was a very romantic marriage, and Frances cherished the poems he wrote for her. They never had any children, unfortunately, which is which was a very big cross, as they both longed to have their own family. Well, maybe if they did have children of their own, they might not have been such great entertainers of and delighted so much in other people's children. Oh, that's right, so true. So, continuing with his bio, in 1903 was the year that he met Father John O'Connor, who was instrumental in Chesterton's conversion. G.K. Chesterton's literary contemporaries were H.G. Wells, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, George Bernard Shaw, as I mentioned earlier, Forster, Wilde, Kipling, and of course, Hilaire Belloc, just to name a few. In 1905, he became columnist to the Illustrated London News and also published his book called Heretics before he was a Catholic. He defended Catholicism whilst he was still officially an Anglican, which is quite interesting. From 1905 to 1911, he published many essays, the novel The Man Who Was Thursday, and his first Father Brown book. In 1914, he fell seriously ill and recovered from his life-threatening illness the following year. In 1918, his younger brother Cecil died while on military service. Cecil Chesterton was also a journalist and a friend of Hilaire Belloc's, and in fact, in fact, all three of them promoted distributism. Just a brief definition of distributism. It's an economic ideology that developed in the late 19th, early 20th century, and it's based upon the Catholic social principles taken primarily from two encyclicals, one being Leo XIII's Rerum Novarum, which was covered in Popes Against the Modern Errors on Restoration Radio with Matt Gaskin, if you're interested in looking at that one, although they don't, I don't think they mentioned distributism in that particular show, but it's still a worthwhile show. And the other encyclical is Pope Pius XI's Quadragesimus Anno. So that's, if anyone's interested, they should read those encyclicals. So please continue, Margaret. Yes, that truly is a big topic in itself. And perhaps we can attach links to both of those encyclicals. Okay, so continuing the life of GKC, in 1920, he visited the Holy Land, this was the same year the League of Nations was founded, prohibition began in the U.S., and American women won voting rights. Of course, Chesterton had things to say about all of these in his usual wit. Chesterton argued that the armistice of 1918 was not a peace, but a truce. He said the pacifists, that is, the internationalists who created the League of Nations, which would be the which they'd probably be the equivalent of the United Nations and the European Union today. He said they want to create an artificial union of nations, denying them their autonomy and national character under the illusion that this will do away with hostilities. He said it would only create hostilities and it would and it will be the internationalists intervening with force into every other nation. Internationalism is against nations. She really understood that, didn't he? He was way ahead of his time. Um, so, and on prohibition, he said that it resulted from two things, Puritanism and big government. Chesterton said that it attacks personal freedom and liberty and that it's a type of slavery. 
feminism is a variation on prohibition as it wants to prohibit women from becoming mothers and turn them into something narrow resembling men. What he means by this is that women should not just have one trade, but 20 hobbies. Women were not kept at home in order to keep them narrow. On the contrary, they were kept at home in order to keep them broad. The world outside the home is one mass of narrowness. He said, quote, it, that is feminism, is mixed up with the muddled idea that women are free when they serve their employers, but slaves when they help their husbands, unquote. He also said that the problem with the distinctive roles between men and women, the distinction of dignities, that is, is that each sex is trying to be both at once. GKC was prophetic and saw all the implications of how feminism was at the core of the destruction of the family. And of course, feminism's greatest triumph, legalized abortion, was all sadly foreseen by Chesterton. Sorry, it looks like I digress from the chronology. <laughs> so, okay, so um, we're, we're up to 1920. So this would be, this would bring Chesterton into his mid 40s. Okay, so in 1921, the Chestertons went to the U.S. for a lecture tour, and the following year, 1922, he moved from London to Beaconsfield, outside of London. This was the all-important year as he was received into the Catholic Church thanks to his association and friendship with Father John O'Connor and his friend, Hilaire Belloc. Chesterton wrote an essay called, Why I Am a Catholic. He starts off by saying, Quote, the difficulty of explaining why I am a Catholic is that there are 10,000 reasons all amounting to one reason, that Catholicism is true. He then says he could fill all his spaces with separate sentences, each beginning with the words, quote, it is the only thing that, as for instance, one, it is the only thing that really prevents a sin from being a secret, two, it is the only thing in which the superior cannot be superior, the sense of supercilious. Three, it is the only thing that frees a man from the degrading slavery of being a child of his age. Four, it is the only thing that talks as if it were the truth, as if it were a real messenger refusing to tamper with the real message. Five, it is the only type of Christianity that really contains every type of man even the respectable man. And finally, six, it is the only large attempt to change the world from the inside, working through wills and not laws, and so on. So continuing with his life, between 1922 and 1926, besides many, many essays, he wrote his great books on St. Francis and the Everlasting Man, he lectured in Spain, and in 1926, his wife Frances was then received into the Catholic Church. This was the year that Dorothy Collins, his faithful secretary, began to work with him. Dorothy Collins also, by the way, converted to Catholicism. In many ways, she was the child of the Chestertons because they, you know, she's, she was actually buried with them. In 1927, the Chestertons and Dorothy Collins visited Poland. He published his book, the Catholic Church and Conversion, along with his collected poems and other essays. In 1929, they stayed in Rome and met Mussolini and Pope Pius IX. This was the year he wrote The Thing, The Thing being the Catholic Church. 
Between 1929 through 1933, he wrote more books of essays, and then his famous book in 1933 on St. Thomas Aquinas called The Dumb Ox. And I, I would say if you're going to read only one book of Chesterton's, I would say this is the one to read. Yeah, indeed. I really enjoyed that one, so I'll second you on that recommendation. Yes. Okay, in 1934, he was taken ill while on holiday in Italy. This was the same year Hitler became the German Führer and Stalin launched his great terror in which millions died. In 1935, he wrote his final Father Brown story, The Scandal of Father Brown, and his more somber book, The Well and the Shallows, in which he has dark warnings of dangerous world developments on the horizon. His insights are absolutely chilling. The well is the church, deep with truth at the bottom of it, and everything else in the world is the shallows. Uh, so moving right along, his final year, 1936, is the year that he holidayed in France, published his last book of essay, essay called As I Was Saying, a book of essays. His last work was his own autobiography, which he finished only a few weeks before he passed away from congestive heart failure. And this was the morning of June 14, 1936, in his home in Beaconsfield. His last known words were a greeting spoken to his wife. Towards the end of his life, Pope Pius XI invested him as knight commander with star of the papal order of St. Gregory the Great. That's incredible. Like these noble honours and titles bestowed on him from the Roman pontiff himself. Yet how few Catholics since then have even bothered to read any or many of his writings. So thanks so much for that, Margaret. What a busy and remarkable life he had. Talk about someone burning with zeal for the spread of God's kingdom. And it goes to show that although, of course, priests and religious have, quote, chosen the better part, that even the laity can do great works for the church. Now, in the conservative nervous order world, isn't there a lot of talk about his canonization? Yes, well, there's actually a revival going on in some nervous order circles, and more and more people are discovering him. But I hope this doesn't put too much, you know, put you off too much. Because yeah, we because we don't want to associate him with the likes of, you know, um, JP two and Ron Kelly and like. So no, it's, exactly. it's terrible to have him in the same conversation. But go on. Right. Okay, so the Chesterton society, the Chesterton society, has been pushing for this beatification and canonization. So the Novus Ordo Chestertonians are mounting their campaigns for it while the Jews are mounting their campaigns their, their campaigns against it. Oh, so why is that? Well, Chesterton wrote on every subject, as I said before, so of course he had something to say about the Jews. For example, he expressed his views in an essay titled The Problem of Zionism. So of course now there are all these unjustified anti-Semitic claims against him. I think it will definitely be interesting to see how this all plays out. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize this indeed. It might put Bergoglio in an awkward situation with all his buddies, eh? So now GKC didn't only write essays and newspaper articles, so would you tell listeners about his very popular fiction? Yes, okay, good. I'm glad we're up to this topic now. His best-known novel was called The Man Who Was Thursday, which we alluded to in our introduction. That book was written in 1908 before his conversion, so that was the same year he wrote Orthodoxy. It's kind of this um, surreal, metaphysical thriller and has a suspenseful plot involving a police detective and a bomb-throwing anarchist. 
but the world knows Chesterton mostly through his popular priest detective, Father Brown series. He created Father Brown, amateur sleuth character in the early 1900s, who appeared in about 50 stories. It's said that he actually based that character on Father John O'Connor, whom I mentioned before, and he was the parish priest in Bradford, England, who was involved in GKC's conversion in 1922. Chesterton met Father O'Connor in 1903, and his first Father Brown book, called The Innocence of Father Brown, was published in 1911. So this was actually before his conversion. So yes, he obviously had a love and respect for things Catholic well before his actual entry into the Catholic Church. Yes, the fact that he was friends with the Catholic priest while still an Anglican shows his openness to the faith and the truth. Anyway, so Chesterton made Father Brown's methods and abilities of crime solving to be mostly intuitive and shaped by his experience as a priest and confessor, having an uncanny insight into evil. His stories always have a rational and reasonable explanation, with Father Brown believing that the supernatural is the great reason of all. GKC weaves Catholic concepts and morality into all of his Father Brown books. In his first Father Brown short story, The Blue Cross, he introduces Father Brown as a very short Roman Catholic priest who was a little absent-minded, much like GKC himself, he has a large, shabby umbrella, which constantly fell to the floor. Uh, so in this short story, the character of Flambeau is also introduced. He's a jewel thief and a master of disguise. So in this story, Flambeau is disguised as a priest. And there is, there's a scene with Father Brown and Flambeau in a restaurant having a theological debate. So later on in the story, after Flambeau reveals his true identity, thinking that he is surprising Father Brown with this revelation... In fact, he's actually one step behind Father Brown because he, he had already concluded that he was not a real priest. The reason is Father Brown deduced that he could not have been a real priest based on Flambeau's attack on reason in which he showed his poor understanding of theology. It's all very logical if you're a Catholic priest. Flambeau then appears in 48 stories and eventually he's reformed by Father Brown. He gives up the criminal life to become a detective himself and then assists Father Brown appearing in a number of other short stories. So this is typical Chesterton. Throughout these books, Father Brown proves that the Catholic faith is true and reasonable and seeks for people to repent and convert. This is also an indication into G.K. Chesterton's character of himself. In real life, he argued for the truth, but not just to prove that he was right, which he always was, but to persuade and convert his opponents. Can I just share two little quotes I found from the Father Brown series? Oh, yes, please do. Okay, so here's one quote in his book, The Innocence of Father Brown, and it's on humility. Humility is the mother of giants. One sees great things from the valley, only small things from the peak, unquote. And this one is from the Father Brown omnibus, Quote, heresy always does affect morality if it's heretical enough. I suppose a man may honestly believe that thieving isn't wrong. But what's the good of saying that he honestly believes in dishonesty? <laughs> That's just typically very profoundly clever of him. Well, we've pretty much done a 
very good job of introducing him and done a few samplings which should get people you know interested in checking out more so as we close out this episode having provided a basic introduction to get our listeners enthused about exploring the wonderful world of gkc we've also given a brief overview of his life and touched on his writings and we will continue with more about his writings in a future show and we'll also get into his prowess as a public speaker now i want to thank you margaret for your time and being with us on this episode is there anything else you would like to add in summary before we close out our episode uh well i guess i just hope this introduction will encourage our listeners to start exploring his works and perhaps get a few more traditional catholics on the chestertonian bandwagon And please tune in to our next show when we will sink our teeth a bit more into some of his brilliant writings and talk about some more features of his public life. Well, once again, Margaret, thank you for your time. God bless you. If you have any questions for Margaret or feedback on this episode, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us at catholichome at truerestoration.org and we will pass along your questions or comments to Margaret Or better still, please comment or ask questions on the Restoration Radio section of our online forum. We would also take this moment to remind you that all correspondence with us is strictly confidential. All of us here at Member Supported Restoration Radio hope that you found this show to be informative, helpful and beneficial to you and to your faith. In return, please think of offering a Mass, a Rosary or even a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the restoration, I am Teresa. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.